Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, good morning, everybody. This is, uh, this message maybe needs a, an asterisk with an, a warning on it this morning. May hurt feelings for, let the, Mason, I got one laugh at least. Mason laughed in the kitchen. No, this, this is, is going to be a fun message. I'm, I'm actually really excited about this. I hope that this is eye-opening for all of you as to the warfare that we are in today and the tactics of the enemy in this warfare. There are 38 slides, yes. And Amy Woolsey has snacks for everybody up here. If you need something, she promised. So just come up and grab some apples or something. But before we get started, we'll, we'll pray and open this up and dive in. Lord, we thank you so much for everything you've given us. God, we thank you for preserving your word. God, I just thank you so much that you have spoken and you've preserved it for us today and given us every single thing you want us to have in this warfare that we are a part of. So Lord, I pray that you would anoint this message, that it would be your words from 1 John 2.27 that would teach us everything. We love you, God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have in store for us today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so the first couple of slides are just kind of a recap from last week at the beginning, but just as a reminder how the Bible can be viewed as a chronicle of supernatural warfare. And if you remember, one of the earliest declarations by God in Genesis 3.15 is a declaration of war. And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, the seed of the woman. That's the first title of Jesus in the Bible. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So you see how God once again makes that personal pronoun his to the seed of the woman, speaking of Jesus. And last week we looked at the war that God declared and executed prior to Genesis 1-2. So he stood up, Jesus stood up and went to war against the dragon to the point of destroying a planet that we looked at last time and setting the earth desolate for billions and billions of years. And so what we're going to do today is pick it up from that point forward and just do a very high level overview of the war through the Bible from that point and the strategy of Satan back and forth. And then what I really want to get to is the meat of what does the war look like today for you and I since that time? For the past 2,000 years, what does it look like? So we'll, that, that's really where we're going to dive deep today. And again, if you, if you really think about it, most Christians are utterly shocked to learn that we are in a warfare. You know, a lot of people for most of, of my life have just gotten up, gone to church on Sunday, sat there quietly, left, and they kind of checked the box, and then they didn't really understand why they were losing at home with their spouse or their children or their families. Uh, I remember at one point in the 80s when I was growing up, 
the divorce rate in Christian homes was higher than the divorce rate in secular homes. I mean, it's a testament of people not understanding the warfare and how the enemy is attacking us today. But we are in a war with an enemy that wants to kill us. Satan does not want to fight us, if you remember that. He wants to kill us. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And that's his goal, is to devour. The, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So remember, the enemy has to steal something from you in order to kill and destroy you. And what he steals today from you is the word of God. Because Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So if the enemy can convince you not to read it, to set it aside, it's too complicated, I can't understand it, then he can steal that from you, weaken your faith, isolate you, and destroy you. And again, it's hath God said, Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Remember, it's that planting that doubt, hath God said, yea, hath God said. He's constantly trying to thwart the plan of Almighty God. And we're going to run through this kind of quick, but Satan's methods, they're the same. Hath God said. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, as Jesus says in John 8, 44. And he's going to bring about the ultimate lie in the tribulation in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. And that is the, going to be the great lie from Satan in the tribulation. We talked about that a lot when we studied Revelation. But God is going to allow that lie to come upon the earth. So as we continue to study this, let's not forget that we have ultimate victory. That's what I want you guys to, to realize the true hope that we have in Jesus. Because we do have ultimate victory because of what he did. 1 John 4.4 4, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you. The living God, if you are saved, is in you. And so greater is he than he that is in the world. That, that lying serpent that roams around like a roaring lion, you have authority over him. You have authority over him and his fallen angels and the demons that try to attack you and your family every day. You have the authority, but you've got to have the whole counsel of God's word. Elisha tells a servant when they are surrounded by the Syrian army, look at 2 Kings 6.16, and he answered, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. If you remember, Elisha and his servant were hiding out and the entire Syrian army were on the mountains surrounding where they were in this little hut. And the servant wakes up and looks outside and sees the entire Syrian army surrounding them. And it's just he and Elisha. And he starts to freak out. You know, master, master, wake up. What are we going to do? And Elisha says, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And what he saw was in the spiritual side of the warfare. And remember a few passages later, the servant is sitting there. He doesn't believe him. And so Elisha says, God, open his eyes that he can see. And finally, God removes those scales from his eyes, and he can see the chariots of fire 
on the mountains that were surrounding the Syrian army. So you have angels, you have God on your side, you have the good guys fighting for you, but you've got to get in the warfare and recognize where we are. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's a long list of things that are attacking you. And God, and God is saying, no matter what comes against you, you cannot be separated from the love of God. Jesus has conquered it for us. And you look at the first verse, how many things, how many items are there in 835? It's seven, of course. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. It starts out with the sevenfold structure. It's all over the Bible. 1 John 3, 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's the ultimate victory, Jesus, that he may destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You know, we don't really picture that a lot today because we're on the other side of the cross, but the devil had the power of death. Think about that. And Jesus, because what he did on the cross and being raised from the tomb three days later, took that power back. He conquered it for us. He flipped the entire script on that day when they came to the empty tomb. Submit yourselves in James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How can you resist the devil if you don't know God's word? It'll be impossible. I'm just telling you it will be. You're going to have to fight this war with the word of God and prayer. And most of the times, what you need to pray is the word of God. So you need to know it. Ephesians 1, 20 which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That which is to come is Revelation 21 on that we read about and studied in depth. But look what he did. Christ, he set him above all, there's that list again, principality and power and might and dominion, those ranks of angels, those fallen angels that were attacking us. Jesus was set above all of them. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. In Hebrews 2.9, he tasted death for every man. As God declares war through Satan or to Satan, he reveals part of his plan to the enemy. And I want you, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting to go through. In Genesis 3.15, God declares that verse that we read, the seed of the woman, 
that the Messiah that's going to crush the serpent will come through the human line. That's step one. That's the plan that's revealed. And from that point on, Satan builds his entire strategy against the human line to try to stop the Messiah. And every single time you go through the Bible and God hones in his plan, Satan hones his strategy of attack. That's what I want you to get sensitive to here. So Cain's murder of Abel in Genesis 4 was rooted in a fight over offering works to God versus what God required. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember uh, Cain offered his works, the fruit of the ground, what he tilled and made. Abel offered a lamb from the flock. See, that's what God wanted. God wanted something that you had no part from a works standpoint in producing. Abel did nothing for that little lamb to be born, but it was a sheep to the slaughter, just like Jesus. And Satan got in and convinced Cain that he was, he was done wrongly because God did not like his sacrifice, and so murder began. But that's part of the strategy, wipe out the seed of the woman. Now, how can I do that? I'll convince you that you were put in the wrong, that God did you wrong. Then you move on, and Satan could not stop humans, so he attempts to genetically corrupt the entire human line in Genesis 6 with the Nephilim, and only eight are saved. Okay, that's why the flood came, because the entire human line was corrupted by Satan. And out of that, after the flood, he singles out Abraham's descendants. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee of a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. This is one reason why the United States has been tremendously blessed since Israel was reinstituted as a nation on May 14th of 1948 is this promise by God. I will bless them that curse that bless you and curse them that curse you. When you look at the nations that are against Israel, economically, socially, the family unit, all of it is destroyed in their nations. And it's due to this verse right here. Uh, Great Britain annexed land from Israel right after World War II, and they've never been the same. They created Transjordan, or what we know today as Jordan, because they turned their back on the promised land to the people of God. And curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In other words, the Messiah that will come through your line. And so what does Satan do? He hones his attacks on Abraham. Abraham's seed would return to the promised land in Genesis 15. And he said, to, said unto Abram, Know of surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt, when they go down there. And shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. He's prophesying the whole Exodus event here. And afterwards shall they come out with a great substance. Remember, when they leave, when they leave Egypt after the death of the firstborn, the Egyptians are basically handing them all of their wealth, saying, please just get out of here. You, you've, it's too much. It's too great. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And what God is saying is in this promised land where the Amorites were, after 400 years, Abraham's people would come back to take it. But 
look what he says. The sin of the Amorites is not yet full. God was giving them time to repent because he always has this volumetric measure of sin. Sodom and Gomorrah, remember their sin reached up to heaven. Finally, it was too grievous. God couldn't sit any longer and do nothing about it. And you look around in the world today and you wonder, man, the sin's getting full in a lot of nations and God's going to have to act at some point. He does that all through the Bible. I think his next act may be just to remove the church and say, fine, forget it. You guys are, you, you want a world without my church, you can have it. But that gave Satan 400 years to repopulate the Holy Land with the Nephilim, and that's what he does. Satan tries to stop them from ever returning with the famine in Genesis 50. That didn't work, so he tries to destroy the entire Hebrew male line in Egypt in Exodus 1. Remember, Moses was in the basket. Then the Hebrew lady saved him and hid him. Okay, that was an attempt by Satan to kill the male line. All of this to try and stop the seed of the woman. It's, it's continuously. God releases his people with a mighty and strong hand, but Pharaoh and the entire e Egyptian army pursues them into, in Exodus 14 to the Red Sea. Then they get drowned, but they're once again saved. They didn't have enough faith to enter the promised land, except Joshua and Caleb. It's a great namesake, because he had enough faith. In the meantime, Satan's repopulating the land of Canaan to prepare for the Jewish people to return, as declared in Genesis 15. And finally, Joshua and Caleb lead the charge back into the promised land, and God tells them of certain tribes to kill every man, woman, and child. But why? It's because they weren't all human. They were these Nephilim hybrids from Genesis 6. And God is telling them, you've got to wipe them out. And that's in, Genesis, in Joshua 6.21, you see that? Og, if you remember, Moses fought Og, the king of Bashan. He had six fingers, six toes. His bedstead was like 13 cubits long. These guys were giants. Goliath is one of the most famous ones. But they were genetically, it was Satan tried to create man in his image. That was the point. And God couldn't take it anymore. He had to wipe them out. But in all of Bashan, look at Joshua 12, 4 through 5. And the coast of Og, king of Bashan. Okay, Bashan was, if you remember Psalm 22, which I think is on the next slide. Isn't it, Austin? Yes. Psalm 22. When you read Psalm 22, it is Jesus, first person singular, from the cross. My God, my God, why, is I, why have thou forsaken me? Okay, and there's two verses in it that are so interesting that you learn in the Old Testament that's not in the Gospels. Psalms 22, 12. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. See, when Jesus was on that cross, they were, there weren't cattle from Bashan surrounding him. These are, these are demonic hordes of the remnant of Satan's attempt to corrupt the human line, the bulls of Bashan. Okay, and Og was from Bashan. When you study Bashan all through the Bible, it's always an attack by Satan that comes out of Bashan and Mount Hermon, okay, that whole area. But Jesus is seeing in the spiritual realm the bulls of Bashan that are gaping at him. They gaped upon me with their mouths. They're, they're hurling slurs at him and telling him, we've got you now. We have you on the cross. You're dead. You're never going vic to have victory over us. And I can only imagine Jesus sitting there just kind of smirking as you can imagine, he would, knowing, just wait, just wait three days. We'll see. We'll see who's got who. But they gaped upon them with their mouths. When you look at this, this is fascinating. 
when Joshua and Caleb enter the promised land, when you study the conquest of the land in Joshua and Judges, there are three areas of the land that they did not listen to God to wipe it clean. Those three areas are the Gaza Strip, West Bank, and Golan Heights. How many of you hear that in the news today? All the time. There's a reason they didn't wipe down the spiritual strongholds in those areas. The Gaza Strip is on the far west bank of Israel on the Mediterranean. Okay, the Golan Heights is in the northeast by Syria. And then the west bank is the west bank of the Jordan River. Okay, remember when Joshua and Caleb parted the Jordan River and God parted it and they crossed over? That was the West Bank. Their first battle was circled in red there at the house of Jericho, the house of the moon god. It was a spiritual stronghold from Satan. It's the house of the moon god. It's the same crescent moon that adorns every mosque in the world today. And Jesus, if you remember from Joshua 5, led that battle at Jericho. He is the one that fought it. And then as they went through the land, he was conquering for them, but then they wanted an earthly king. So they got Saul and there's this whole, whole, uh, basically downward spiral from that point on. But those three areas, they did not wipe clean, like God said, and it still bothers them today. So one of my challenges to you, look at second Corinthians 10, three, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. But for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Okay, they did not use the spiritual weapons to pull down those strongholds. And what stronghold in your life has God told you to eradicate? Is it completely destroyed? If not, what happens in the future? See, their future generations are paying for them not being obedient all those thousands of years ago. And the same thing will happen in your life. You can't have a stronghold in your life that God tells you to get rid of and stuff it in a closet and hope it doesn't affect your family anymore. You've got to get rid of it. Okay, so then God focuses his plan on David's line. Remember 2 Samuel 7? And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God's saying, okay, the Messiah is going to come through David's line now. So it was Abraham, and then specifically it was the tribe of Judah, and then specifically it was the line of David. And so from that point on, it's always attacks against David. Jerome kills his brothers in Second Chronicles 21.4. Oh, the Arabians slew all but Azariah. Athila kills all but Joash in 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3. That's also in 2 Chronicles 22. Hezekiah is assaulted in Isaiah 36 and 38. And then finally, Satan probably thinks he's won because God pronounces a blood curse on Jeconiah. If you remember this from our study in Revelation chapter 12, Jeremiah 22, 30 Thus saith the Lord, write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. See, when that happened, I bet Satan and all the fallen angels were just cheering because they probably thought, finally, we've got it. The bloodline for the Messiah has been cursed. 
a few generations after David. But God, like you're seeing as you go through this, God always makes a way. And the way he made with, for this was the exception in Numbers. When you go to Numbers, there's the daughters of Zelophehad in Numbers 27. So what happened was when you were a, a father, if you had only daughters, you could not pass your inheritance to your daughters. They had to marry within the tribe, and then you could pass it through them to your son-in-law. And that's how they dealt with inheritance in that time. And that's all in Numbers 27. In Numbers 36, 10 through 12, verse 12, And they were married into the families of the sons of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of the family of their fathers. See, that's how you got around that. And in Joshua 17, the daughters of Zelophehad go into the promised land and they remind Joshua, hey, we don't have our inheritance yet, but they go to Eliezer, the priest, and they say, hey, remember Moses and God wrote that, that exception, the law of beneficiaries back in Numbers 27. You had to marry within the tribe in order for your inheritance to stay within the tribe. And so you could pass it on to your son-in-law. So they go and remind him. And you fast forward, David's lines cursed, Jeconiah is also known as Coniah and Jehoiachin in the Bible. And thus, through the genealogies, a virgin birth could transfer that inheritance back to the male line of David. And only if married properly in the tribe, using the law of exception for the daughters of Zelophehad. And when you look at the two lineages from David in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, you go down through Solomon and Nathan, and there's where the blood curse happens right there at Jehoiachin. So there's the blood curse. You go all the way down, there's Joseph, the legal father. He could not inherit, but if he married within the tribe, he marries Mary, that inheritance could pass through the male line over to Mary. Thus, Jesus could be the rightful heir as the Messiah. So that's how God got around that. And when you think about after that, after the blood curse, look at Haman's attempts in the entire book of Esther. Remember, he tries to wipe out the Jews all the time. You get to the New Testament, you have Joseph, Joseph's fears in Matthew 1. Herod's attempts are to kill all the, the newborns that are two years old or younger. He's trying to get Jesus. Satan is trying to kill him, two years old and younger. Remember the Christmas message we talked about how the Magi came from the east, from the Parthian Empire, with the prophecy from Daniel of when Jesus would be born? They traveled for what could have been probably two years when they first saw the star. That's why Herod says, two years and younger, kill them all. But Jesus, of course, escapes. At Nazareth in Luke 4, they try to throw him off a cliff. There's two storms at sea in Mark 4 and Luke 8, which if you look at the Sea of Galilee, it's not even a sea, it's like a lake. It's, it's a small body of water. There aren't violent storms on small bodies of water. So what is going on there? It's an attack by Satan. He's trying to wipe out Jesus. And then the ultimate strategy, the cross, where he thinks he's got him, where he thinks, okay, this is it. Once and for all, I have the son of God and I'm going to kill him. But he had no idea the resurrection would be three days later and then the greatest relationship ever created by God would be the church right after that. He would have never done it if he would have known that. He would have left it alone. And all that is summarized in Revelation 12. But why is Satan not finished today? When you, know, you think about it, 
the cross, he conquered Jesus, supposedly, or so he thought. But why is he still at it today? Jesus has won. He's victorious. He rose from the grave. He saved us. We have eternal life. And here's why he's still at it today. What is his strategy? Hosea 5.15. This is Jesus speaking. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early or earnestly. See, you remember when the Jews, when Jesus is riding in on the donkey, they reject him and he declares corporate blindness on the nation of Israel. And what he's telling them in Hosea is, I'm going to come, I'm going to die. I'm going to go and return to my place, which he did. He ascended. And I'm going to sit there until you, Jews, Israel, acknowledge your offense and in your affliction, read that as the time of tribulation, the time of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble, that seven-year tribulation period, in your affliction, you will seek me with great fervor. Okay, so, and that's the whole point. He's driving them to the brink in the tribulation to cry out to him, and that's exactly what happens. In the back half of the tribulation, remember, they flee Jerusalem. They go down to the rock city Petra through Jordan, and they cry out to God, and their prayer is Hosea 6, and Jesus returns to save them, and Isaiah 63 documents that. But all of this we see today from the regathering of Israel on May 14th of 1948, and the attempts to wipe them off the map is a continuation of this warfare. It, you are watching daily in the newspaper the continuation of this war between God and Satan for his people. It's constant. It's continuous. And so pay attention to Israel, first of all. God is not through with them, and he has a plan for them. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is Israel past, present, and future. And that's what we're going to read in Romans 11 in just a minute. But think about this. We as the church are just another target of Satan in this warfare. See, if God, if Satan can silence the church and weaken the weapons of our warfare, the word of God and prayer, then perhaps blindness can remain on the Jews. See, they have to petition Jesus to return. And so if he can wipe them out, if he can keep them from learning about their Messiah, then he, they won't petition him. That's what he's thinking, as illogical as it sounds. We know who's victorious at the end, but he's still trying. Thus, they will not get to know Jesus. They cannot petition his return, and Satan can just keep ruling over the earth physically. That's why he could offer the entire kingdoms of the world to Satan, I mean to Jesus in Luke. Remember when he, t when he tempts him? He takes him to a very high mountain. Read that as an interdimensional mountain because you can't see all of the earth from one mountain. You can't do it. So he took him somewhere interdimensionally, and he showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and said, if you would just bow to me, I would give these to you. You don't have to go to the cross. And praise God, he wouldn't do it. But Romans eleven twenty five, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That's a term for the church. See, blindness is on them until the church age is full. Then God says to the son, go get them, bring them home. And Jesus brings us home. We meet him in the air in 1 Thessalonians 4, and blindness starts to fall off of Israel where they missed it. 
all along. And when you see when you see some of the best rabbis in Israel start to acknowledge the Messiah, you know that blindness is getting thinner. And so get ready because the church is going home then. But what is one way Satan attacks the church today that is so subtle that hardly anyone notices? He attempts to dismantle the word of God. That's how he attacks us today. 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So study, this word is sparduzo in the Greek. It's to hasten, to make haste, to exert oneself, to endeavor, or give diligence. In Ephesians 4.3, it's used as endeavoring, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Hebrews 4.11, it's laboring. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. In 2 Peter 1.10, and wherefore the rather brethren give diligence, that's the word, diligence, to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fail, or fall, I'm sorry. 2 Peter 3.14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, there it is again, diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. So you must study, endeavor, labor, and be diligent in the word of God so that you can be without spot and blameless when Jesus takes us home. You cannot just go wandering around in your walk. You will be susceptible if you do that. And that's the point of these verses. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Sounds an awful lot like the mission statement he gave us for the church, an unashamed bride. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. You know, anything in life worth having requires you to fight and labor for it. Anything. Think about it. Your marriage, your kids, your relationships, your job. You have to be diligent in everything, right, that you do. So why not your relationship with God? And why not your study of the word of God? Rightly dividing is to cut straight, to cut straight ways, to proceed on straight paths, to hold a straight course. It's equivalent to doing right to make straight and smooth, to handle a right, to teach the truth directly and correctly. You have to rightly divide the word of God, but you can't rightly divide the word of God if you don't have the word of God. And that, this is the only place in the New Testament that uses this Greek word. It's fitting that it's tied to studying the word of God. It's so important to hold a straight course in God's word. You don't add to it and you do not take away from it. And we looked at that last time, these three verses in Deuteronomy and Revelation, where he says, do not add to it, and do not take away from it. You've got to stay right with God, with what God says. And I love that he closes the Bible in Revelation 22 with this admonition right here in Revelation 22. Don't add to it, and don't take away from it. So God, when you think about this, God takes this whole issue very serious. And why? Because this issue is why the entire human race fell. And in Hosea 4.6, God says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. His people, that's us, the church. We right now are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge of the word of God. We are, frankly, we have a, a global church that is biblically illiterate. 
when you really think about it. Genesis 3, 1 through 4, that's that hath God said. Satan's tactics have not changed. They're exactly the same today. Plant doubt about what God said. Doubt grows into weakness. Weakness grows into disbelief. Disbelief leads to isolation. And isolation leads to being unproductive for the kingdom. That's what he wants. So one way that the enemy uses this tactic today is in the translations of God's word. And if you've never studied this or looked at this, just I want you to listen to this with an open mind and just listen and see what, what Satan is doing because it is deliberate. It is absolutely deliberate. Okay, studying God's word is not a logical exercise. It's a supernatural spiritual exercise first and foremost. It's not logical. And Satan has lied to the church for too long saying, don't open it, it's too confusing. You'll never understand it. And it's not, your, it's not up to you to understand it. Praise God. I mean, if it was on, on our understanding, we'd all fail. It's on the Holy Spirit. He's your teacher. And God is so desperate to sit with his people and for you to open his word. He is so desperate for it. And I think something less than a third of Christian or a fourth of Christians even open God's word on a weekly basis on their own. When you think about it, statistically, it's why the church is so weak today. But God anticipated an attack on his word. So he spread the message exactly as he stated. Isaiah 28, 10, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. See, he spread the message. You can't go, he anticipated this attack by the enemy. So there is no one page in the Bible that you can go find that is everything that you need to know about salvation. It's spread throughout. There's no one page on the doctrine of baptism. It's spread throughout. And he did this because if you're in a war with someone, what do you try to do? You try to block their communication. In World War II, if you, could, if you could block the communication between the Allies and the Nazis, you had an advantage, right? One, where, one side or the other. You try to block it. And so Satan right now is trying to block the communication of God's word. And how does he do this? There literally are committees that sit, they're called the Jesus, or not Jesus movement, I'm sorry, the Jesus Coalition, I think. But there's a link there, you can look it up from the LA Times. There are literally our committees that sit around and they vote on whether Jesus really said something or not. And we all saw from Revelation 22 the outcome of those that do that. It's not good. You don't want to sit around and say, hath God said? Did he really say that? Maybe we should delete that. Let's, let's remove that from the New Testament. Jesus didn't say that. Harper Collins now owns the copyrights to most of the, of the most popular modern English translations. The NIV and the ESV is two of them. But they are the publisher of the Satanic Bible. Now, that's a complete oxymoron. You know, don't attribute the title Bible to something that Satan wrote. It's not the Bible. It's the enemy's book. And as of 2015, the NIV had deleted 65,000 words from the Bible, and it continues today. Every time most people around the world read the Bible where? On these, right? 
That's where most people read them. If you ever notice on the Uversion app, there's an update all once in a while that you've got to download. Well, that update continues to delete words from the Bible. And they're specific words. And we're going to look at some examples of those. But as of 2015, the NIV had deleted 65,000 words. So if there's 788,258 total words in the King James Bible, they've deleted 8.2% of those words as of six years ago, seven years ago now. And it keeps going. And nobody notices. Nobody pays attention. And frankly, nobody really cares. But you know, (laughs) this is just sarcasm at the bottom, okay? But the KJV is the best because it has 31,102 words. Uh, 3 plus 1 plus 1 plus 0 plus 2 plus equals 7. That's, all, that's in the New Testament. Sorry, not in the whole Bible. In the New Testament. But interesting. When you, get, when you look at copyrights, I, I found this fascinating. To get a copyright, only 10% of what you write can be the same as something that's already been written. So think about that. If I wrote a book right here, if this is God's word in the English translation and I want to write another English translation, the next one I write can only be 10% of this one, of the same. So when you go to to Mardell's or some Bible bookstore, and you look at all these English translations of the Bible, think about how that compounds. The third one can only be 10% of the two. Then the fourth one can only be 10% of the three. And on and on it goes. And so logarithmically from exponentially you get to the point where you're not even holding God's word anymore it can't be the same so did God say it or not you know that's the question Uh, the King James is the only English translation of the Bible that is a word-for-word translation of God's word and it's been studied so thoroughly because it's so old that if there's an error in a translation, like a word wasn't translated right, it's very well documented, and you can connect it back to the Hebrew or the Greek and study that, which is why I try to bring that out in slides a lot when we go through verses. But here's some examples of what the NIV has removed. Look at Matthew 17, 21, where Jesus speaks of how to cast out specific demons. In Matthew 17, 21, how be it this kind goeth not out only, but by prayer and fasting. So Jesus is telling us how to cast out certain demons. Remember the disciples were praying and trying to cast out this demon. They couldn't get it. And Jesus comes to them and says, well, this one can only be removed by prayer and fasting. Now, why would Satan not want that in God's word? There's a reason, right? Because Jesus is giving you a key to something to unlock the power of fasting and prayer to cast out this specific type of demon. But that's not in Matthew 17, 21 is not in the NIV. It removes Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. It's a declaration of why Jesus came in the flesh to save the lost. Every satanic cult on earth denies the one thing, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. That is the commonality of every cult on planet earth. And if you listen to, to movements in different churches and they deny that, it is rooted in Satan. It just is. That's why they deleted Matthew 18:11. The NIV removes Matthew 23:14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses and for a pittance make long prayer. 
Therefore, ye shall receive the greater damnation. And that verse is all about personal accountability. And I could list a hundred verses that they removed about personal accountability. See, they change a lot of it to be, we are accountable to God, the collective we, not you. And so it's, you're, you don't have to be accountable to God for your sins. We all are. And it's, it's that collectivism. It's, a, it's totally satanic. Uh, the NIV removes Acts 8.37. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Yet another declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. They remove that verse. When you go to Acts 8.37, remember it's Philip speaking to the treasurer on how to, what he must do to get baptized. And Philip answers him on what he has to do. He's got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's totally gone. In first, this one's kind of sneaky. First John 5, 6 through 8. What they do is they take the middle verse 7 and they delete it, but then they take verse 8 and split it into two. And so you never even notice it's gone if you don't go and look for it. In first John 5, 6 through 8, the verse that they delete is underlined, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Look at it in the NIV right there at the bottom. That whole verse is gone. But they don't show that verse 7 is removed. They just take 8 and split it into 2. Now they're removing that the Word, remember in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Okay, it's a declaration of Jesus as the Word and the, and the Trinity. It's the truth of the Trinity. Okay, Luke 17, 34 through 37 they remove verse 36 that's underlined there. And it's all about the rapture and a testament of a round earth. I tell you in the night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. See, in the bed would be at night. Grinding the mill was in the morning. And in the field you would harvest for the next day. So it was morning, noon, and night all in one verse. It's a testament to a rapture, a simultaneous rapture at one moment of the entire earth of every believer. And they remove that because they don't want you to know the truth of a, an instantaneous rapture of the entire globe at one instant. Mark 9:44 and 9:46. this is Jesus's words. Where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says that twice, that exact quote back to back in Mark 9, 44 and 46. Jesus says it's twice. And it's all about eternal, personable accountability. And both times it's deleted in the NIV. How does that happen? You know, think of how, how does that happen? It gets me really fired up because God's word is being decimated. And the church literally sits back and accepts it. And it's ridiculous, but the church has been lied to, and we've all just sat around and accepted it. We've been lied to that there's textual errors, that copyist errors, and that it was written just by men, so how can we know it's true? You know, on and on and on. You hear all these scholars, right, the scholarship of people with a thousand letters behind their name that try to plant doubt on and on about what God said. Well, and there's this error in this manuscript over here or something, and it's, it's all a lie. It's completely a lie. Do you trust man or do you trust God? 
do you trust that God could hold his word together? It's his word. It's not man's word. You know, do you trust that the creator of the universe could hold his word for us? Is he strong enough to do that? He did. He did hold it for us. But we've let man take what he wrote down and start to make new revisions and excerpts and deletions. And the vast majority of the body of Christ doesn't even open it to read it anyway, so you can't refute it. And it's not an indictment on any one individual, but globally, Christians do not read it. Nobody's standing up to correct biblical illiteracy in the church. It's feel-good, bullet-point messages with rock shows, and you leave, and you go home, and you, you got your two verses. Another example of planning doubt is the theory of two Isaiahs, which is refuted in John. So in seminary, they will try to teach you that the book of Isaiah was not written by Isaiah. It was written by two different Isaiahs because the back half of Isaiah is all about God returning, him paying for our sin, the millennial reign, etc. And the front half is very much heavy, heavy, heavy in judgment. And so these scholars sit around and say, well, it's got to be two different people that wrote it because the message is so different. All they have to do is read John 12. And one of my, one of my favorite Bible teachers, this messed him up for a long time, that theory of two Isaiahs. But praise God, God had the answer in John 12. See, everything that the enemy tries to throw out there, the Holy Spirit has anticipated in his word somewhere. It's in John 3, 12, 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. That's a quote from Isaiah 53, 1. And look at this verse right here in the middle. Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. That's a quote from Isaiah 6.10. So you have the two halves of Isaiah as spoken. Look what Jesus says there, because that Isaiah said again. It's the same Isaiah. So it's refuted in John 12, but people have been led astray for decades thinking that the book of Isaiah is some kind of counterfeit. And the answer is right there. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. So some logical questions to consider. Because I've just given you a few examples. Why does the same publisher run the Satanic Bible and the modern English Bible translations? You Just think about that logically for a moment. Let that sit in. Why is that? Does it seem like a coincidence that the modern English translations are missing verses about why Jesus came in the flesh, how to cast out specific demons, about the rapture, etc.? It's not a coincidence. Okay, it's not like that they're deleting verses on Matt went to lunch on Sunday at 1. They're deleting meaty verses that have deep, deep meaning for us in our walk with the Lord. It's, it's deliberate. It's an attack by the enemy, piecing it out little by little. And he does it slowly so nobody notices. And how is it that all these old manuscripts only seem to be missing verses about Jesus 
You know, like I said, why aren't they about a name of a town or what day someone went to a different village? Why are they always about Jesus? It's an attack on our Messiah. It statistically is impossible. I'm just telling you from a mathematics standpoint, it is deliberate. There is no way it is accidental. And if all these old manuscripts had these verses missing, then why are they in the oldest English translation to begin with? Where did they come up with it? They didn't because it, it's documented in over 5,000 manuscripts, and people need to care more about Jesus being divided than what manuscript it came from. And when you really think about it, look at Romans 8.1. Here's 10 words missing. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Look at the NIV. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It stops. The rest of the verse is not there. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. They deleted the 10 words, but why those 10? Because it's all about personal accountability. There's no condemnation for you as an individual if you are walking after the spirit and not in the flesh. If you are saved and you're walking in the flesh, you will have a refining fire in your life. You will be tried by God. And Hebrews talks about this, a refining correction. These 10 words at the end of Romans 8.1 are all included in these Bibles. The 1649 Italian, the 1611 authorized King James, the 1569 Spanish Bible, the 1568 Bishops, the 1565 Beza, the Geneva Bible from 1557, the Luther Bible from 1545, 1539, the Cranmer the Coverdell in 1535, the Tyndale in 1525, Erasmus in 1516. It goes on and on all the way down to the 5th century. And then at the very first one, the Slavonic translation. The Slavonic. I knew you were special, Blake. You're just a special guy. I wish I had a translated Bible after me, the Freeman Bible. I, it's, But... It's, it's all in those Bibles for thousands of years, so why has it gone all of a sudden? You just, just think about this. And if you're walking after the flesh and you're in Jesus, there is going to be a refining correction on your life. Hebrews 12, 7 through 9 talks about this. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof are all, are all our partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers in our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? See, if you endure chastening, you're a legitimate son. You're born again of the Father. And so you should expect it, because you should be walking after the Spirit and not after the flesh. And that's what Romans 8.1 is all about. Walking, if you, there is no condemnation if you're walking in the spirit. There is, however, if you're walking in the flesh. And that's what they don't want you to know. Because they hope that you will just live however. You'll be fine. Live your unproductive life for the kingdom. And, got, and you'll just move on. So we could go into the root manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls containing entire books. You know, what caves they were discovered in. What shoes the archaeologist was wearing. <laughs> This is sarcasm. Um, what phase of the lunar cycle it was, on and on and on and on. 
You, you know, you could listen to all these things. You could prove all of that as to why when you hold a Bible, is it the word of God or not? But just ask yourself logically, why those verses? Why? Do you see the attack? Can you see it? Can you see the enemy coming in and slowly saying, hath God said, and just piece by piece getting it out of there? The most underutilized weapon of our warfare is the word of God. It is the most unread book for the modern Christian. And it's sad. It breaks my heart. It really does. I hope you guys are seeing my heart in this. It's not to be dogmatic. It's to stick with what God said and let the spirit teach us, not our own logic or understanding. That's what it's about. And you need the entire armor of God to be victorious in this warfare. And there's all the armor again, the word of God and prayer. It's our only offensive weapon. And so if you're the enemy and you can block that communication and you can start to piece it out, you'll start to win the war. And that's exactly what has happened for the better part of 40 to 50 years now, that he has planted doubt in what Bible and what word did God really say. And it's really, really sad. It breaks my heart. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, those four ranks of angels again, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. That's what Jesus has. And Jesus is the word of God. He is the word. It's his word. It's not ours. So let's listen to what he said and not what man thinks he said. That's my challenge to all of you. And what I want to read real quick, I didn't tell this when we did our one-year celebration a while back. Uh, just give me... Five more minutes, guys. I know we're going a little long. It's 11 o'clock. Everybody's probably getting hungry. Amy still has snacks, I promise. So the word of God. When, I, when we were in the summer of 2020, when we were praying about the church, I, I was down at my sister-in-law's house in Dallas, and I'd always wanted to get a copy of Haley's Bible Handbook. And she had a copy on her coffee table from my wife's grandma. Okay, so my wife's grandma's name was Ethel Osborne, and this book was given, listen, this is so cool, to Ethel Osborne, December of 1969, from the Bible study group in appreciation for your years of service, and then all the ladies in her Bible study group signed the book. Isn't that cool? This was from 1969. This book was published and written 100 years ago. That's how old this book is. And I picked it up, and I just opened up to the front cover, and there's a message on it. It says, the most important page in this book is 814. And I thought, okay, well, God, 814, let's go see what you got to say here, because this is, that can't be a coincidence. So I went, and this, again, keep in mind the backdrop of, of us praying about the church. Okay, we were in the middle, it was the summer of 2020, we were praying about the church, and, and my heart really was, we need a church that just studies the word of God verse by verse. That's it. That's the only thing we have to offer is the word of God. If we could do that, people are so hungry for it. The sheep have been scattered. They'll come and get fed. 
and they'll and their lives will be flourishing because of it. That was my that was all I wanted. And this is this is what this page says. Hopefully I can figure out how to read this with the mic. The most important thing in this book is the simple suggestion. Now this was written a hundred years ago. Think about this. That each church have a con- congregational plan of Bible reading. And that the pastor's sermon be from the part of the Bible read the past week, thus connecting the pastor's preaching with the people's writing, reading Bible reading plan. This suggestion, if followed, would beyond any doubt whatsoever produce a revitalized church, provided the pastor himself thoroughly believes in the Bible as God's word and puts his heart into that effort. The church and the Bible go together. The church exists to proclaim and exalt the Christ of the Bible and for nothing else. A church that does not enthrone the Bible in the lives of its people is false to its mission. The Bible is not just a sort of text or pretext, book for preachers and teachers. It is a book for the people, all the people. And preachers and teachers who build on any other foundation must not be surprised if their work in the end proves to be very superficial. With all of our facilities for propagating Christian truth, our well-organized churches and Bible schools, our seminaries, our highly trained ministers and church leaders, with the last word in up-to-date religious education methods, an endless amount of Christian literature, and an ever-increasing number of meetings and organizations where we talk and teach and preach in the name of the Bible, even quoting chapter and verse, Yet the great body of our church members treat the Bible as if it were a mere side issue in their lives. They are willing, provided enough promotional pressure is put on them, to listen to preachers and leaders talk of Bible things. But as for reading it themselves, only a few do it. Of a hundred average church members, perhaps one may even know the names of the Bible books or have any idea of what each book is about. Probably more than three-fourths of our American Protestant church members could not offhand tell where to find the Sermon on the Mount or the Ten Commandments. This was a hundred years ago. It It spoke to me so much two years ago now almost. And on top of this ignorance of the Bible and indifference to it and neglect of it, they have no greater sense of loyalty to the church or conscience about it. On an average, less than one-third or one-fourth of a congregation's enrolled, professed members attend its Sunday services with any degree of regularity. What a fearful indictment of a prevailing techniques of doing church work. Is it not something sadly lacking in methods that are producing churches that are so largely of the Laodicean type? Indifferent, half-hearted, lukewarm, disloyal, and worldly-minded? or the Sardis type, in which there are only a few who have not defiled their garments. I marvel that church people are so indifferent to and neglectful of the book that tells them about their Savior, but I marvel more that church leaders are doing so little about it. Unquestionably, the most fatal weakness of the present-day church is the lack of leadership in the pulpit on this one point of guiding and leading its people into the one habit that is the source and basis of everything that the church exists to accomplish in its people. How indicting is that? 
That was a hundred years ago. And this one, I'll just read this one last paragraph. Every Christian ought to be a Bible reader. It is the one habit which, if done in the right spirit, by 1 John 2.27, plug that verse again, more than any other one habit will make a Christian what he ought to be in every way. If any church could get its people as a whole to be devoted readers of God's word, it would revolutionize the church. If the churches of any community as a whole could get their people as a whole to be regular readers of the Bible, it would not only revolutionize the churches, but it would purge and purify the community as nothing else could do. There is no truer statement in that book than that at the end. And that is where the heart of this church is. And I hope you guys all understand, I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you're reading the NIV. Do not misunderstand. I know it's a very popular English translation, but I want your eyes to be open to the fact that there is an attack on it from the enemy. If you're not aware of how the enemy is fighting, you can't counteract it. And so that's my hope and prayer for you. And what I want to do out in the, God spoke to me a lot about this yesterday. Um, Listen, if you want a Bible from New City Church, from us, you can get one. We're, we're going to do, uh, there's a, you can get a burgundy or a black one. We'll get your name on it. We'll get New City Church, and I've got a verse I'll put on it for you guys. There's a sign-up sheet on the, in the foyer next to where the notes are when you walk in. There should be a sign-up sheet. If you want one for you, if you want one for a family member, if you want one for a friend, just write the name down as you would want it printed on the Bible and select if you want burgundy or black, and that's it. And we'll get those, I'll have those sign-up sheets probably, I don't know, this week and next to give some families that were out today sick a chance to sign up. But if you want one from us with your name on it for New City Church as a study Bible, go write your name out there and we'll get one. And we'll get those made in the next couple of weeks. And um, I'll bring them in and we'll just, we'll throw them from the stage. I don't know, I'll feel like Oprah or something. You get a Bible and you get a Bible, you get a Bible. All of you get Bibles, but that's, that's, that's how passionate we are about this issue. I want you guys to have something that you can sit down without your phone and actually read the word of God. Because I don't know if you're like me, when you're reading the Bible on your phone, there's text, email, alert, uh, notification, calendar reminder, all these things start popping in and it just distracts you. You can't, I mean, you can do it, but put on an airplane mode or something if you need to. But what I, there is nothing sweeter than sitting with a hard copy of the Bible and just going through it verse by verse and just sitting with the almighty God that wrote it for you to begin with as the weapon of your warfare and to sit there and let the spirit lead you and guide you because that's what faith is. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God. That's what it's all about. So if we could get into the word of God, if we can get our communities in the word of God, if we can get this church to be regular Bible readers, Edmond and Oklahoma City will never be the same. I promise you, there is a small remnant here, but it will never be the same. It would start a fire in the community that your life would be changed your marriage, if you have a problem in any part of your life, it would be fixed. I promise you, if you've never tried it, try it. 
and just test me and give the Lord 30 days, give him 60 days. Just see if everything you're struggling with in your life doesn't just disappear because that's what he does. He comes and he sits and he picks you up. Man, and he will just walk you through all of that. Just let him, give him a chance. A lot of people have tried to do it on their own for often way too long. Give Jesus a chance. He is the word of God. And that's what the remnant's all about. Those that would not bow the knee in Gideon and God filtering down to get that army that would be on fire, equipped with the sword of the spirit for our savior. That's what it's all about. So if you need to know how to get born again, if you're watching this online, we're here, it's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. Isaiah 1, 18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's what Jesus does. So if you need anything, if you guys are out there watching this, Anderson family, we're praying for you. We love you guys in Australia. We are still praying for revel- a, a movement of God, a revolution by the Spirit down there. Please keep them in your prayers, guys. Australia is, is going full tilt off the cliff, and we need Jesus to step in in a mighty way. But with that, I'll close us in prayer. Thank you guys for your time today. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you that you did not leave us stranded in this warfare that we are in that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not of flesh and blood, but of the spirit of God. And Lord, in your word in Psalms in 91, you declare that the pestilence will not touch our household. Though a thousand fall at our right hand and 10,000 are left, God will remain in the shadow of the almighty. And God, that's my prayer for all of these families that as they go on this, the greatest adventure they will ever undertake in reading your word and getting into that spiritual exercise, that they remain under the shadow of the Almighty. That, Lord, you are their refuge, their strength, their warrior. You are a fighting king, as we saw throughout the Bible, as your warfare with Satan continues. And we are here, Lord, to stand up and to fight with you, to take that fight to the enemy. We love you, God. Be with us as we leave this place. Be with us this week ahead and prepare our hearts to open the book of Hebrews next week and to start going through that verse by verse. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.